is that? Helen, I came for you. six months now. That trip to the Criticos Mansion must have really fried our circuits. Danny doesn't drive, and I need a break and leg stretch. There are no decent services around, but this Chicago housing project looked spacious enough for a wander. Danny, do you fancy taking a walk round? Maybe get to the locals? Let's do it, mate. It seems like a nice area, doesn't it? It seems lovely. I mean, you know what I say, mate? One man's concrete is another man's meadow, so let's have a good look round, shall we? Let's do it. Welcome once again, boys and ghouls, to episode 9 of Disgusting Offal, the spin-off series from One Man's Meat that takes a deep dive into some of our favourite horror movies. And Danny, we have got an absolute stone-cold classic to talk about today, pal, haven't we? One of 1992's finest. Absolutely, mate. 31 years ago, the world saw the release of uh, Candyman, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere, Candyman, they whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. 
An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Where did I... It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Now, she is about to discover. Helen? What's behind the mystery? I'm sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all... Come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. Candyman, you don't have to believe. Just beware. Oh, dude, I have been the most excited to talk about this film with you. You know, I I love a bit of Clive Barker, and this is one of the adaptations of his work that has stood the test of time for me, pal. What about you? Absolutely, Matt. It's one of those ones um, you grew up watching, and it was like everywhere on videotape, much like um, Hellraiser. It just, as you said, stands the test of time. Yeah, I mean, you used to see it everywhere. I mean, it's it's lightened many a bargain shelf in the Virgin Megastores and HMVs of, of my day, which I know I'm really aging myself. Uh, but yeah, this seems to be one of those really iconic films that Clive Barker's is known for. Like he he creates a, a wonderful tapestry and world and character into everything he puts together. And spoiler alert, this is an example of that, isn't it? It definitely is, mate. And that's a great point you bring up about um, just seeing the videos everywhere. That's just something people will not understand today. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, to be honest, I mean, there's not really any retail spaces anymore, but I used to fill many a weekend uh, in my local HMV just uh, looking at whatever horror videos were out there to buy, you know. Definitely, Matt, especially with this poster. Um, I've, when um, I looked at the uh, actual poster of Candyman, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the poster of it. But, yeah, definitely looking forward to it. Well, Meatsiders, for those of you who have been living in a cave for the last 30 years or who happen to be called Dan Griffin, Candyman is a 1992 American Gothic supernatural horror film written and directed by Bernard Rose and starring Virginia Madsen, Tony Todd, Xander Berkeley, Cassie Lemons and Vanessa E. Williams. Based on Clive Barker's short story The Forbidden, 
The film follows a Chicago graduate student completing a thesis on urban legends and folklore, which leads her to the legend of the Candyman, the ghost of an African-American artist and the son of a slave who was murdered in the late 19th century for his relationship with the daughter of a wealthy white man. So, Danny, as is always my first question every episode, when did you first encounter this piece of cinematic excellence? Very early on in um, childhood. I do remember watching it, I believe it was on Channel 5, because they used to show things like The um, the Shining and um, just just these old um, horror films, which is um, just timeless. I say old, but I actually mean timeless. So I, I believe I first heard of it there, but I've gone at least 20 years without watching it um how about yourself mate wow 20 years that that's almost sacrilege but i'll i'll (laughs) let that go um so mate for me it was the next channel up which was channel four and i mean this guy might have completely passed you by um as a whole but uh Growing up, there was a television presenter called Johnny Vaughan, who was known the most for The Big Breakfast. But before doing that, his first really big project was something called Movie Watch. And it was a half hour movie review show, kind of like a a more youth culture orientated take on the BBC film review shows. And they would always review like three main movies, a little bit like Games Master with their game reviews and stuff and they'd always have at least one horror movie a week and he gave his time that week to Candyman and it just looked really interesting and I recognised Tony Todd's character because this show had also done a review of the Night of the Living Dead remake so that was my introduction to it I would have been about well would have been in 1992 so I would have been about 12 maybe 13 but I didn't actually watch it until about five or six years later when as you might have guessed I picked it up at a car boot sale oh yeah that's the always classic story <laughs> but, it certainly um, is I, I do I don't remember Johnny Vaughan but I do remember the big breakfast um in some spaces and things like that but yeah oh well wonderful so with Candyman in itself um my partner in crime on these car boot sale trolls was one of my cousins who was massively into anything that had um, a black actor or actress in it. He grew up in Luton and there was a massive um, St. Lucian population there. So he was very much steeped in Afro-Caribbean culture. Um, But sadly, Uh, While he was an excellent source for kind of hip hop and reggae and all that sort of thing, he knew nothing about horror. So his recommendations were very hit and miss. But of all the terrible recommendations he made, he just happened to find this video cassette and he presented it into my cold, dead hands. And I knew that I would never doubt one of his recommendations again, because how can you not love a movie that has a starring actor such as the superlative Tony Todd. Yeah, definitely, mate. And with such, um, I mean, this is the first film uh, of Candyman and it's like such a rich history, you could say, just from the backstory. 
Yeah, and I've got a, an interesting little tidbit about the backstory at some point in our review, but um, I would be very remiss if I'm talking about Tony Todd, not to steal a line from the excellent Marty and Fitz show and go, oh, Tony Todd. That I mean, honestly, I am as straight as they come, but I've got to admit, Tony Todd is a sexy man. <laughs> Especially in the nineties. <laughs> Especially in the nineties, it, it's mostly that voice. Um, I'll be very honest. Um, he hasn't aged very well, but oh, as as soon as he opens his mouth, I'm I'm taken back to the past. It's 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 magical, just magical. That's the power of nostalgia, mate. The power of nostalgia. But um, going back to the film and running as far away as I can from the rampant homoeroticism that we seem to dive into. Uh, this film came to fruition after a chance meeting between Bernard Rose and Clive Barker, who had recently completed his own film adaptation of Nightbreed in 1990. Another classic we need to cover at some point, I might add. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Fabulous. Uh, Rose expressed an interest in Barker's story, The Forbidden, and Barker agreed to license the rights. Now, this short story, Danny, is part of Clive Barker's Books of Blood anthology series, which has seen many adaptations of its work, including Rawhead Rex, Lord of Illusions, Quicksilver Highway, Midnight Meat Train and Dread. Now, have you read any of the Books of Blood at all? No, but I've heard of Midnight Meat Train. Uh, did they do a film of that? They did. It's got Vinnie Jones in it, and I think yeah. Bradley Cooper. Yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, I, I believe I watched that years ago on YouTube. <laughs> I certainly hope you have, mate, because it's excellent. And again, it's another one that we'll be getting to at some point. It is awesome. Yeah, definitely, mate. Have you read them? I've, I've got them on my shelf. Um, I... I'm, I'm one of those terrible readers where I, I'll buy books of people that I'm obsessed with. Like I've got almost the complete works of Stephen King, but as his books have got progressively longer to the point that I need more walls in my house, um, they're, they're more for display purposes. And sadly, um, as much as I love Clive Barker and the man is a legend, I would probably need to take about a year off work to really dive into his works. But I think the man's a genius. And what I have read of the books of blood are absolutely wonderful. Definitely, mate. I, I really want to get into them as well. Excellent. Well, I definitely recommend that you start there. Um, if you can get the actual anthology books at a decent enough price, it might be worth. Now, obviously, you're relatively London based, so you'll have quite a lot more secondhand bookshops than we do. But you're probably more likely to get them at a good price than I would. But honestly, um, I can recommend you having a good dig around and finding because a lot of the earlier editions of these books actually pick up quite a decent price. Uh, so um, I think you might be all right for a deal there. Yeah, I'll definitely keep an eye out. Fab. Well, um, as with anything to do with rights to a movie, there's always a little bit of creative license involved once the rights are required. So while Barker's story revolves around the themes of the British class system in contemporary Liverpool, Rose chose to refit the story to Cabrini Green's public housing development in Chicago and focus instead on the themes of race and social class in the inner city United States. Now, Danny, do you know anything about the Cabrini Green housing projects at all? Absolutely not. Nothing. <laughs> but at watching this, you, you do you do learn a lot. 
You do. So for those of you that fancy being bored by a brief history lesson, at least I'll try and make it brief. Cabrini Green Homes was a Chicago Housing Authority public housing project on the near north side of Chicago, Illinois. At its peak, it was home to 15,000 people, mostly living in mid and high rise apartment buildings. But crime and neglect created hostile living conditions for many residents. And Cabrini Green became a metonym for problems associated with public housing in the United States as a whole. In 1995, the dilapidated mid and high rise buildings began to be teared down with the last demolished in 2011. And today, only the original two storey row houses remain. The area has seen major redevelopment due to its proximity to downtown, resulting in a combination of upscale high rises and townhouses, with some areas being owned by the Chicago Housing Authority, creating a mixed income neighbourhood. And the gentrification of the area is played up to massively in the 2021 Candyman film, which I think would serve as a good bookend review at some point, mate. Yes, it's very much like, uh, in fact, you what you said could be applied to London as well. Very run down, East London, very run down. Um, and yeah, it's, a lot of it is being uh, as under regentrification. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all art galleries and uh, craft ale breweries in the darker parts of London now, isn't it? You know. Yeah, very much <laughs> for students. <laughs> definitely. And hey, nothing wrong with that. Bring no. it on, says me. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. But this whole crime riddled side of things played massively into the first Candyman movie and Cabrini Green was notorious for the many problems that it presented. Poverty and organised crime have long been associated with the area and a 1931 map of Chicago's gangland notes that Oak Street and Milton Avenue were called Death Corner, captioned 50 murders, count them. At first, the housing was integrated and many residents held jobs, but this changed in the years after World War II, when the nearby factories that provided the neighbourhood's economic base closed and thousands of people were laid off. At the same time, the cash-strapped city began withdrawing crucial services like police patrols, transit services and routine building maintenance. Lawns were paved over to save on maintenance, failed lights were left for months and apartments damaged by fire were simply boarded up instead of rehabilitated and reoccupied. Later phases of public housing development were built on extremely tight budgets and suffered from maintenance problems due to the low quality of construction. Unlike many of the city's other public housing projects such as Rockwell Gardens or Robert Taylor Homes, Cabrini Green was situated in an affluent part of the city. The poverty-stricken projects were actually constructed at the meeting point of Chicago's two wealthiest neighbourhoods, Lincoln Park and the Gold Coast. Less than a mile to the east sat Michigan Avenue with its high-end shopping and expensive housing. Specific gangs controlled individual buildings and residents felt pressure to ally with those gangs in order to protect themselves from escalating violence. During the worst years of Cabrini Green's problems, vandalism increased substantially, with gang members and miscreants covering interior walls with graffiti and damaged doors, windows and elevators. Rat and cockroach infestations were commonplace, rotting garbage stacked up in clogged trash chutes which once piled up to the 15th floor and basic utilities often malfunctioned and were left in disrepair. On the exterior, 
boarded up windows, burned out areas of the facade and pavement instead of green space, all in the name of economising on maintenance, creating an atmosphere of decay and government neglect. The balconies were fenced in to prevent residents from emptying garbage cans into the yard and from falling or being thrown to their deaths. This created the appearance of a large prison tier or of animal cages, which further enraged community leaders of the residents. Now, I bet you weren't expecting a history lesson today, were you, pal? Absolutely not, but I'm glad I could hear it. (laughs) That's good. But the filmmakers really play to this area manifested with problems nestling in the middle of quite affluent areas, which we'll get to talk about during the movie, won't we? Absolutely, mate. It's re- it's almost like you can say the the uh, location is a character itself. Very much so, and they really play to it in um, both the 1992 movie and the 2021 one. Really, so the the main thing that they talk about is that essentially the actual area of Cabrini Green itself is actually surrounded by identikits of it in quote-unquote nicer areas which is what they play to with kind of access points for the uh, for the main character getting into uh, some of the nicer areas and things don't they yeah definitely you can see that throughout the film you can and talking about the film Candyman was theatrically released on October the 16th 1992 just in time for Halloween by TriStar Pictures and Polygram Filmed Entertainment The film received generally positive reviews and grossed over $25 million in the United States, where it was also regarded in some critical circles as a contemporary classic of horror cinema. It was followed by two sequels, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh and Candyman Day of the Dead, with a direct sequel of the same name being released on August 27th, 2021. Now, critically, Dan, it hasn't been without its issues over the years, but as time has gone on, this film has been viewed quite positively for what Rose was trying to convey as a long-standing societal issue. So, bud, shall we get into the meat and potatoes of this wonderful film? Absolutely, mate. Let's do it. So, while researching urban legends... University of Illinois Chicago semiotics graduate student Helen Lyle learns of the Candyman, a spirit who kills anyone who speaks his name five times in front of a mirror. She learns of a recent murder at the Cabrini Green Homes public housing project and two dozen others that have been attributed by locals to the Candyman. Skeptical? Helen and her friend Bernadette Walsh repeat the Candyman's name to Helen's bathroom mirror. But nothing happens. The end. (laughs) Not really, obviously, but uh, if the first 11 minutes have been spent building up this gruesome urban legend, Danny, would you be poking the bear like this? Absolutely not, mate. And I'll tell you something, I am afraid to do this now, but I still wouldn't do this. (laughs) (laughs) Neither would I, mate. Trust me. Uh, I'll be very honest. I am very much a, a black and white kind of guy. And if something's a myth, that means it doesn't exist. But as I have gotten older, and especially as I've gotten into my horror films growing up, I don't like to take chances. No, definitely. Life's too precious. 
<laughs> it most definitely is. But Helen and Bernadette are working together on a thesis on how Cabrini Green residents use the Candyman legend to cope with hardship. So she and Bernadette visit the scene of the most recent murder, which is where we hear two details. The, the main detail being that the killer had come in through the medicine cabinet, but also that the building that Helen lives in is an exact identical version of the Cabrini Green housing projects um, which kind of makes a lot of sense for the rest of the film doesn't it? It does yeah it plays throughout the entire film exactly so while they're um, having a, a walk through the area Helen discovers a room where offerings have been left for the Candyman and then afterwards they interview the victim's neighbour Anne-Marie McCoy a single mother raising her infant son, Anthony, and giving nothing away for the future, Danny. Remember those names for a future episode, mate. Absolutely, I will. I've jotted them down. <laughs> Good man. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of what uh, Anne-Marie's character says in this film that um, makes a lot of sense in one of the future Candyman films. Let's just leave it at that. That's cool, mate. I can't wait to get into them too. Awesome. So, Helen has a husband named Trevor who is a lecturer at the university and later on they are having dinner with Bernadette and an expert on the Candyman legend, um, a Dr. A. Hole, I believe his name is. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not his real name to be fair, but he, he comes across as a bit of an A-hole, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Uh, but he states that the Candyman was Daniel Robitaille, uh, an African-American man born in the late 1800s as the son of a slave and who grew up to become a well-known painter. After he fell in love with and impregnated a white woman, her father sent a lynch mob after him who cut off his right hand and smeared him with honeycomb stolen from an apiary, attracting bees that stung him to death. His corpse was then burned in a pyre erected on the site where the Cabrini Green homes were eventually built. Now, according to a, a special feature on the Blu-ray that I bought, Danny, it was Tony Todd that created the Candyman's backstory. Oh, wow. Actually, yeah, that would make a lot of sense because this backstory was just brilliant, wasn't it? It was, and it really plays to Tony Todd's classically trained actor sensibilities of kind of what's his character's motivation. So, yeah, it's really clever. Definitely, mate. Helen returns to Cabrini Green, where she encounters a young boy named Jake who tells her of an incident where a developmentally disabled boy was violently castrated by Candyman in a public bathroom. She goes to investigate where a man calling himself the Candyman attacks her. She identifies her attacker later on, who in reality is the head of a local gang, and he is charged for the murders attributed to the Candyman. However, she soon encounters the real Candyman who appears to Helen in a parking garage and hypnotises her. He explains that because she has discredited his legend, he must shed innocent blood to perpetuate it. Helen blacks out and awakens in Anne-Marie's apartment, covered in blood, to find Anne-Marie's pet Rottweiler, Annie, decapitated and her son, Anthony, kidnapped. The police arrive and arrest Helen. 
and I seem to say this every episode, Danny, but that escalated quickly. That really did. <laughs> but it was very, very brutal. I remember watching it and I was like, wow. I just couldn't believe they got away with that even in 1992. I know, but w- one of the things that I love about this whole jump from one kind of aspect of the film to another is that you kind of get the motivation of the villain as to why he's doing the things he's doing like you you don't tend to get any of this in a slasher until the end of the film so the fact that you're treated to this early of like you know you are causing people to not believe in me anymore so here i am and here's my punishment i mean what a way to do it i mean that's just excellent very well said mate it really is and we also start to get the hints of a, an unnatural chemistry between Candyman and Helen as well, don't we? It's it's almost like they have this intrinsic link that we might get to find out about later. There's definitely a connection there, yeah. There is, which hopefully we'll get to find out. But back to the present day, uh, Trevor eventually bails her out of jail because he's not in his own home at three o'clock in the morning, is he, the dastard? <laughs> Where was he? <laughs> Well, I've got my uh, thoughts on that, but we'll 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 soon get to that. But Helen is going through some slides from the photographs that she took from her first visit to the Cabrini Green housing projects, and she manages to find the Candyman in a photograph that she took in the bathroom, which then leads to a commotion in her own bathroom before the Candyman appears inside Helen's apartment and cuts her neck, causing her to bleed and pass out. And this is at the exact same time that poor Bernadette arrives at Helen's apartment. And despite Helen's pleas for Bernadette to go, Helen comes to to see that the Candyman has murdered Bernadette, which is a bit clumsy, really, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. She should have really stayed home. (laughs) She really should. But Helen gets framed for the crime and is committed to a psychiatric hospital. And then we get one of the really memorable scenes here, don't we, where Candyman appears to Helen in the psych room, which only serves to further her mania. Like, it's a really powerful scene, isn't it? Like, the the dialogue and everything is just fantastic, isn't it? The chemistry between the two of them is very on point there. Very much so. And again, uh, going back to the special features in the movie... Um, The director, Bernard Rose, actually got these two to partake in some really quite intimate training exercises prior to filming. So they would do um, ballroom dancing and kind of couples counselling sessions and things like that to kind of create this intimacy between the two, which would really play into how they work off each other. And it really shows here, doesn't it? You know. Oh, yeah, definitely. It did the trick. And while being interviewed in preparation for her trial a month later, Helen attempts to prove her innocence by doing the one thing she shouldn't have done, which is summoning the Candyman. I mean, it's a bit clumsy, really, isn't it? It's going back to square one, really. (laughs) It really is. But this time he appears and murders her psychiatrist. But also, quite helpfully, Candyman frees Helen from her restraints, allowing her to escape. And of course, nothing horrible is going to happen for Helen now, is it? Absolutely not. I mean, she's in safe hands. (laughs) Oh, Danny, it's a horror movie, you fool. Of course, it's all (laughs) going to go pear-shaped. 
First of all, she returns to her apartment to find Trevor is now living with one of his students, Stacy. Now, Helen had already suspected something between these two at the beginning of the film, which was nice foreshadowing. I mean, between Trevor and Candyman, she certainly knows how to pick them, doesn't she? She really does. And um, yeah, that was really uh, cool that they went back to the beginning of that, where she did suspect something was going on. It was a nice little subplot. It was, and again, it's it's quite a clever subplot for the end of the film as well. But going yeah. into this point of the movie, Helen confronts the couple before fleeing to Cabrini Green to rescue baby Anthony. When she finds the Candyman in his lair, he tells her that surrendering to him will ensure the baby's safety. He offers Helen immortality before opening his coat, revealing a ribcage wreathed in bees the bees pour out of his mouth as he kisses her and stream down her throat now danny i you probably saw me cringing there i hate the idea of insects in my general vicinity so of all the times i've seen this movie and i've seen it a lot this is the one scene besides the poor decapitated dog that still gives me the ick honestly i was yeah I watched this film again yesterday for context and it's the one scene that left me visibly shaking because I was, it's just, it's just oh, even now just thinking of bees, it brings a prickle on the back of my neck. Yeah, I'm very much the same way. Um, bees, I just can't stand up. I, yeah, I'm very frightened of them. Never been stung in my life. <laughs> I've managed to avoid them. But yeah, I've got that fear too. Yeah, I mean, duh. Don't get me wrong, I mean, wasps are the real pricks of the stripey kingdom, but there's there's just something about bees, I, I, I don't know, they, they, just, they, they just really give me the shivers. Anyway, um, Candyman vanishes with Anthony, and Helen awakes to discover a mural of the Candyman and his lover, who allegedly bears a striking resemblance to her, but I thought whoever drew it did a really poor job, because it looked nothing like her. No, it didn't. <laughs> I, honestly, like even like watching it the first time to the forty-first time, I still don't get how we're supposed to get the connection of, oh, that's you, that is. I I just think tech, I'm just glad technology has improved in the last thirty-one years. <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, I couldn't agree more. So the Candyman promises to release Anthony if Helen helps him strike fear into Cabrini Green's residence. Attempting to feed his legend, the Candyman reneges and attempts to immolate both Helen and Anthony in a pyre. And again, this is something I thought was really cool because at the start of the movie, they show the residents building this massive bonfire. And then when you start to learn about the origin story of the Candyman, that this was the exact spot where he was burned in a massive bonfire. I just think it's really clever. Like, there's these little subtle things throughout the film that if you're just looking at this as a standard slasher and not thinking about it, then fair enough. But if you look into it deeper, like there's so much running through this, isn't there? Yeah, there really is. It's, it's just, I love that it all ties up. But I mean, we're not going too far in the few, um, into the episode, but yeah, it really just ties up at the end. It really does. Uh, but at this point of the film as well, um, Helen has broken one of the unwritten rules of horror which is never trust a sexy ghost <laughs> that's standard standard but the flames destroy the candy man 
and Helen dies while saving baby Anthony. And the residents, led by Anne-Marie and Jake, pay their respects at Helen's funeral, placing a bloody hook in Helen's grave. At home, the grief-stricken and guilt-ridden Trevor, as he should be, looks into the mirror and says Helen's name five times, whereupon Helen's vengeful spirit appears and kills him. And this scene was one of the better ones for me for tying things up, because you get the feeling that Trevor realises that the grass isn't always greener, and he's allowed himself to lose something good for letting his head be turned. Yeah, definitely. But I will say, I believe me and you both were happy to see him get his uh, comeuppings at the end. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, with with the exception of the Candyman character himself, although he's not obviously without his blatant flaws, you know, being a massive murderer and all that. <laughs> the, the men in this movie are just absolute assholes, are they? Yeah. <laughs> like you... You wouldn't save a single one, like at all. And and again, like this this guy is is practically pushing this poor girl into an insane asylum so that yeah. he can get his end away. It's pretty, yeah. Is I mean, even going back to the uh, men uh, security guard, or prison guards beating up um, poor Helen. It, that I found that was a very terrifying visual as well. That's something you wouldn't see today. No, definitely not. And maybe it is just a, a sign of the times or the whole societal thing that Bernard Rose is playing at. But yeah, but yeah they'd, they'd be a lot more careful about what they're showing in modern films, wouldn't they? Which I think is a testament to this movie in that it's, it's so raw in what it shows, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you said it perfectly about the, the decapitated dog. I mean, that's something that's I believe that's the only thing I found in this film that, that was just super disturbing. Yeah. It really is like it's it's very I mean, it, it's very Clive Barker in its tone, but it, it's very visceral in what it shows. Like he would probably be the only director around this time that would quite openly show that in a mainstream movie, wouldn't he really? Yeah, definitely. mate. However, we end the film with a new mural of Helen dressed in white with her hair ablaze appearing in the Candyman's lair. And thankfully, they'd gotten somebody that could do faces a little bit better this time because uh, it was an excellent likeness. Yeah, <laughs> I think we deserve that after that poor attempt of the, of the first try. <laughs> <laughs> we really did. So again, guys, uh, we have got into the film very quickly, but... As we always say, this is because we want you to watch these films for yourselves. So there's a lot of things that we haven't pointed out straight away in our synopsis of this movie because we want you to go out and watch it and discover it for yourselves. But as far as we're concerned, that's Candyman, Danny. Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent film. Um, it's something that, I mean, even just uh, sitting down and talking to you tonight, Chris, it's like I didn't know there was a spin, I mean, a... Um, uh, sequel after this candy i know about the remake but mm. um the second film i'm very interested in now yeah so there was two films i think in 1995 and 1996 and to be honest they're they're not designed to be direct sequels that can be viewed as standalone films but it's it's the fourth one that was made in 2021 which it's it's one of those great things where they've actually done a, an excellent job of a reboot 
but while also sticking to a direct sequel to the movie, it's kind of, you can watch it on its own and be absolutely fine, but if you've got a working knowledge of the first film at least, it really kind of adds some some meat to the original movie as well, mate. It's it's really cleverly put together. Yeah, definitely. It's something we'll definitely be um, seeing uh, reviewing on this show as well in the future. Definitely, because when I was making notes for this, there were so many things coming up that was looking at the 2021 movie, and it was like, oh, I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about that, and that, and that, but it's like, no, let's let's save it for when we do the 2021 movie, because, um, oh, honestly, I've I found a whole load of stuff to talk about, mate. It's going to be so cool. Absolutely, mate. But, Danny, we are here to talk about the 1992 film, and going back to it, as I said earlier, you can watch this film with a, a totally blinkered view and enjoy it as a perfectly good slasher. But this movie has got so much more to it if you start thinking about it, doesn't it? It, it does, especially with the backstory and everything with it. It does. And Candyman was released just as the slasher subgenre was starting to kind of move away from its popularity. And was entering into a new stage of revision. So Bernard Rose's film very much takes its identity seriously as a slasher. Um, so while the the slasher villain kind of has a very distinct look to him to kind of give him that image of a, a slasher character, this is no insane convict or eccentric maniac or or murderous fool and um, like the the whole slasher character idea is turned on its head like this is a, a victim of his own society's oppression so while as a horror tale a lot of people could point to it being fairly stereotypical for the time the narrative that this film explores through its runtime speaks of a more pertinent truth that exceeds an apparent slasher simplicity so um i mean i I can't say this is for our american friends because sadly this is an ism that is all around us but uh, racism has long been a plague that has riddled the very roots of most identities but seemingly especially american identity with the myth of the dangerous black man being one that has permeated western culture for decades In Candyman, this fear materialises into the embodiment of a host, tormented soul, living in the underworld of reality, ready to seek revenge for the racism that put him there. And it's this brutal backstory that doesn't quite elicit the same fear of your Michael Myers um, or your Leatherfaces, but that's because the origins are born from a very real disease of racism. Though by never revealing his real name, or seeking harmony for his bloodshed, the audience isn't asked to sympathise with him. So he's someone that's still very much viewed as a villain, but he's kind of one of those villains that you can root for, isn't he, when you kind of think about what what the backstory is based on. Yeah, you excellently said, mate. It's like you're, you can sympathise with the uh, character, even if you're not black yourself. You can just, like, you see what happened to him and you're just like oh he's just you sort of understand why he's doing it although you don't condone it it's like oh man you see so it just keeps you interested yeah and it's kind of one of the parallels that runs with clive barker's original short story as well which um i i have 
read in preparation for this film so i won't give too much away mate because i want you to read it for itself but again you kind of feel sorry for the Candyman character in the forbidden film as well because again he he didn't ask to be put in that position so yeah you you really do feel for him and so kind of even though the the backstories are very markedly different for both the book and the film. Um, you do still get that sense of you're not asked to sympathise, but you can kind of put yourself in their place, you know. Yeah, definitely, mate. Yeah, it's more of a empathy rather than a, a sympathy, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say in, a, in not quite so many words. But there you go. Um, but the the truth of such a film as this is hidden quite deeply below the exterior of a slasher. So um, you've got a lot of the slasher tropes. So you've got Helen Lyle, who represents the white woman in peril, um, which kind of goes with the the racism side of it as well, because we're we're demonising the black man for decades, including Candyman. Um, Nobody helps him when he's being chased by the racist violent mob. So decades later, he's seeking his reparations for his murder by punishing the white middle class, namely the lead character who is shaped in the villain's image and wrongfully demonised. I mean, this is somebody that is just simply trying to prove a thesis and has inadvertently taken away this character's mythos. Yeah, it's so true. The thesis of the urban legend. Yeah, so we get this really powerful, terrifying moral tale that speaks to the injustice of racism as well as the stereotypes of such a community that only works to perpetuate further myth and prejudice. So, you know, when such lies, fear and stereotypes are constantly presented by the modern media, social infighting never ceases and the myth lives on like a perpetual disease, which is sadly all too true, isn't it? Yeah, very, very reality-based. And it, and it's his deep hidden connections between America's ugly racist history and contemporary urban blight and crime that makes Candyman a, a jarring masterpiece. Now, the, the 2021 movie plays into this a lot more, obviously, as well. Um, but it's still far from subtle in the 1992 film, which I think gives this movie a powerful and timeless quality. Yeah, which I think also plays into why the setting changes from uh, film to book as well. So, uh, as previously mentioned, Barker's short story is set in his native Liverpool, and it's about segregation and the culture of poor urban areas. But um, when Rose was coming up with the Candyman script, Rose is so shocked by the dynamic architecture of Chicago and the large amount of prejudice there that he decided to change the locations um, and he actually got a lot of assistance from the Film Commission of Illinois. So, um, you know, he chose Cabrini Green when scouting the locations and basically the, the he also wanted the projects to be located in between the high-class neighbourhoods so that the character of Helen would feel the chaos from Cabrini Green from a safe apartment and not too far away, which you kind of get a lot in this like suburban security mythos that America presents. Um, And weirdly, but I think it works really well, this Americanization of the story has also turned Candyman into kind of almost this romantic interracial love story where, um, you know, 
residents of this housing project are now victims of a titular killer as well. It's it's an odd little mix, really, isn't it? It really is, mate. And I'm really excited to see the differences of the film and the book. Yeah, it's it is really really interesting. Like it's it's a real jarring thing. So, like poverty is always a thing within both films, and kind of you know keeping the killer sweet, if you'll pardon the pun. Um, so so both both the film and the book kind of showcase those that are living in poor neighbourhoods as regular human beings that are just trying to get by. Yeah. Um, you know so they can live their life but what bernard does really well here if i can call him by his first name is that he he tries to avoid a, a lot of the tropes that were common in a lot of like early 90s ghetto stories such as gangs and drugs i mean a lot of that really it's it's more of a periphery in this story it's 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 more about the Candyman story than kind of anything to do with the stereotypes of what goes on in a housing project, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's like its own little, um, don't want to say its own little universe, but its own little story. Yeah, and I think one of the things that helps him with this is they they kind of go over this almost, I mean, it's almost throwaway, but when Helen and Bernadette are investigating the Candyman's crime scene, they discover that the design of their apartment's medicine cabinet matches the medicine cabinet designs of the Cabrini Green buildings and makes it a possible point of entry for an intruder. Now, this isn't just something that was made up. Um, When researching the film, Rose learns that a series of murders had been committed in Chicago in the very same way. He read a couple of... um, newspaper articles from a guy by the name of um, Steve Bajira about the murder of a Ruthie May McCoy there's that name again um, a resident of Chicago's Abbott Holmes housing project who was killed by an intruder who entered her apartment through an opening behind the bathroom's medicine cabinet oh wow yeah so that's why they play to that a lot and like why they um, kind of have the entry into what becomes the Candyman's lair uh, but it's quite a clever aspect as well as a lot of horror films and series have played into this trope of secret passages and creatures in the crawl spaces, haven't they? Yeah, or the basement or the attic. Exactly. So again, the whole idea of uh, saying the name five times into the mirror and making that mirror be a medicine cabinet, that plays into all of that as well, because that's how he starts yeah. to get into Helen's apartment as well, isn't it? Through yeah, that little en- entrance. It is, and um, it's it's a smart screenplay which uh, garnered a huge amount of attention to casting agencies, and both Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd instantly tried to get parts to have a chance to work with the filmmaker. But Danny, you might not know this: Tony Todd wasn't the original choice to play Candyman. Oh wow! Do you know who was? I certainly do, mate. And uh, this is probably going to shock you: Eddie Murphy. Oh wow! No, that has shocked me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could could you imagine this film with Eddie Murphy in it? Because I certainly can't. It would be possibly stereotypes because he's more of a comedy actor, isn't he? He is. Uh, now, don't, don't get me wrong. He, he has had an attempt at horror before. Uh, he's in the film Vampires of Brooklyn, but that is more of a horror comedy than an actual straight up horror, isn't it? Although he plays the part very well. Yes, I think he was in um, the 
horror hotel or, or something in the early 2000s where he was in yeah 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 that's right but thankfully for the movie going public um the filmmakers couldn't afford him um and furthermore his relatively short stature i, I believe he's only five foot nine uh, would have made him less intimidating whereas todd who was fit for playing the killer as he's six foot five and physically fit but he's also a classically trained actor which i think for a role like Candyman makes him perfect because while he's a terrifying character, he's actually also quite a romantic one when you start thinking about the backstory, the fact that you can empathise with this character. And, you know, if you want a horror icon with just the right sprinkling of sex, Tony Todd's your guy, isn't he? Absolutely, mate. They made the right choice. They did. And Todd himself persists in the special features that he wanted to work with Bernard Rose and... He says in this interview that he always wanted to find his own personal Phantom of the Opera, which is uh, how he comes up with the character's backstory in the film. And there's a lot of parallels, kind of, you know, the the creature in the catacombs that's chasing a, a long lost love. And that, that really does play up a lot in this film, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, mate. So while Tony Todd had the, the harder run of the two getting the part, um, Virginia Madsen was actually friends with Bernard Rose and his then wife, Alexandra Pig, who was the original choice to play Helen. But as the shooting was about to commence, um, Alexandra found herself to be pregnant. So the role of Helen was offered to Madsen instead. Oh, wow. That is it, news. Well, I've got another bit of news about this role as well, because had Madsen not been able to step into the role, one of the producers of the movie was partial to Sandra Bullock as Helen, which would have made for the most scariest part of the movie, personally. Wow. No, that's very um, newsworthy as well. It is newsworthy, but I'll be very honest, if Sandra Bullock had been in that movie, I would have never watched it. Oh, wow. You're not a fan? <laughs> never liked her. <laughs> I just, I just don't get, and yeah, here comes, yeah, yeah, right, okay, here we go. Sandra Bullock is the Kenny Omega of cinema. That's how ah. much I dislike her. Oh, wow, yeah. I just, I, I, I just don't get how she gets all these, these parts when she essentially plays the same character in every movie. <laughs> she is very wooden, isn't she? <laughs> she is very wooden, and the only thing that's missing in every one of her roles is a bus that can't exceed a, a speed limit of more than 50 miles an hour. <laughs> they could have had one in this. They could have done. That That would have been brilliant if, if the whole film had been uh, Helen and Candyman on a bus. I could see that, mate. <laughs> yeah. Slow down for me, Helen, and I will rip <laughs> your soul from groin to gullet. It would have been great. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Candyman on a bus. There you go. <laughs> let's copyright that now <laughs> exactly so true to bernard rose's sense of authenticity three days of Candyman's filming was spent on cabrini green itself while the other days were spent in hollywood sound stages with plainclothes law enforcement by their side todd and madsen went into the buildings of cabrini green as part of researching their roles which was a useful but distressing experience for both actors so for playing the candy man todd tried to act as a primeval boogeyman without overacting the part which was quite tricky to do and he worked with a guy called bob Keane on the candy man's look so 
to begin with, uh, Keane had wanted Todd to wear a, a fake right arm, but um, this was probably to do with the technology of the time. Todd found the movements of the arm too strict for what he was trying to come up with for the character. So that's why they came up with the idea of Todd wearing the hook to indicate Candyman's supernatural being. And the hook took about three hours to make and fit every single day. Wow, that's very interesting as well. It was like they put a lot of effort into that. They did. Um, now, one of the things from the backstory that did get put out is that Todd wanted the character to wear an eye patch, which very quickly got rejected which I think was probably a right decision to make. It would have made things a little bit too herky, I think. Yeah, definitely a bit too gimmicky. But to keep Candyman on a low budget, they actually got the special effects team to use traditional effects instead of optical effects, which I think, again, really plays into Clive Barker's ethos, because as we talked about with our first episode where we looked at Hellraiser, the actual practical effects were a lot better than anything they could have done with CGI at the time, weren't they? Yeah, definitely. And they also used the same team that worked on the movie Backdraft to uh, work on the bonfire scene for Candyman, which I think makes is what helps make it really epic, doesn't it? I need to check that one out. But yeah, it, I definitely will write that down, actually. Backdraft. Oh, mate, it's a great film. Have you not seen it? No, no. Oh, I thought it would have been right up your alley, to be honest, mate. It's really good. It's it's like London's Burning, but American. Oh no, that that's definitely up my street. Yeah, I've written that down. <laughs> there you go. That is that is probably the worst description of anything that I could have ever given. To be fair, but now that it worked, because now I'm very interested. <laughs> oh good. Well, I, I hope you enjoy it. And then even the bees themselves were well controlled. So um, they had to use a, a very specific type of bee. So they got in touch with a guy by the name of Norman Gary, who previously handled the bees in films such as My Girl and Fried Green Tomatoes. Uh, and this film actually uses more than 200,000 real honeybees, and most of the crew had to wear bodysuits to be protected from the stings, although all of them had at least one sting at the end of the movie. No, that you said um, My Girl. Uh, doesn't the main character die from a bee sting on the end of that? Uh, Macaulay Culkin does about halfway through. Yeah, he gets stung oh, to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen that in years, but um, yeah, that's that's what stuck out to me. It was like, oh yeah, they did use bees for that as well. But yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's a great little film. I didn't actually know that they used uh, bees in Fred Green Tomatoes, but there you go. It's a long time since I've seen it. Yeah, definitely. And the bees in this uh, film, um, they come across very like. Like, I always see these things about how humans can control bees. I just want nowhere near them. So I credit every single person who worked on this film with bees. And even though they did get stung at least once, um, yeah, they definitely earned their pay. <laughs> they definitely earned their pay. And one guy that earned his pay um, in the truest sense is Tony Todd, who had negotiated a £1,000 bonus, well, $1,000 bonus, for each of the bee stings that he would receive during filming. And he received 23 bee stings. So when you work it out, that's not a bad bit of scratch, is it? No, that's not. That's just blown my mind. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, would I take a bee sting for a thousand? No, would you, Chris? <laughs> Absolutely not. But uh, the person that should have worked on a pretty decent bonus for bee stings was poor Virginia Madsen herself because she was... Um, 
quite deadly allergic to bee stings. Oh, not good. Not good. Not good, uh, especially when you consider shooting of the film's climax, where the Candyman sends 500 bees into Helen's face. Oh, yeah, that, that can't have been an easy day. <laughs> No, so to make things as easy as possible, uh, Norman Gary had to use freshly hatched, non-stinging and non-flying bees for the scene due to Madsen's dangerous allergy. So they used newborn bees, which were about 12 hours old. Oh, wow. Yes. Specific. It is. So while they could sting, uh, their stings weren't as active and they weren't as uh, poisonous either. So... It was all designed for kind of her safety, to be honest. I really like that. And for poor Tony Todd, it took half an hour to get all of those bees into his mouth. And he recalls being tranced out by the whole thing when he let all of the bees out of his mouth. (laughs) That would have been insane. Absolutely. And then to make things a bit easier uh, for poor Virginia... Rose utilised hypnosis in the movie to work around what he would see as the cliché of excessive screaming in the horror films. So uh, for the scene with the bees, but also for the scenes where uh, the character confronts the Candyman, Bernard Rose came up with the idea to have Virginia Madsen hypnotised. And this process would occur prior to filming the scenes where he and Madsen would interact and take roughly 10 minutes to prepare for. So this was accomplished through the use of a professional hypnotist who established a keyword that Rose would use to put Madsen under a trance-like state. So when you actually see the close-ups of the character of Helen in a trance, that's all real. Uh, Virginia Madsen was hypnotised for that. Wow. It just blows your mind. It's like... Yeah, her watching that back must have been a trip as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah, that's the thing, because when I first watched this, I just couldn't believe, like, I'm like, this is a a fantastic actress, you know, having to play all this for so long. And then when I got to a point where I was, you know, wanting to find out more and more about this film and the stuff that I read about it, it was like, wow, a a lot of work has has gone into this. Like, I... I can't believe that there are people that just won't even watch this film and yet, you know, so much work goes into it. Yeah, definitely. It's always to be appreciated by people like us. (laughs) Definitely. But there was always a cross-section of people that were not going to appreciate this. So this is where we go back to the racism angle, but this is more the kind of scared of being cancelled kind of thing. So during pre-production, producers of the movie began to worry that the film might draw criticism for being racist, given that its villain was black and it was largely set in an infamous housing project. Uh, According to Rose, he had to go and have a whole set of meetings with the NAACP because the producers were so worried. And what they said to him when they'd read the script was, why are we even having this meeting? You know, this is just good fun. And the NAACP's argument was, why shouldn't a black actor be a ghost? Why shouldn't a black actor play Freddy Krueger or Hannibal Lecter? You know, if they're saying that they can't be, that's what makes it racist. You know, this is a horror movie. So really, the producers had nothing to worry about, did they? No, exactly. That's great points made as well. 
But in a 1992 story in the Chicago Tribune, some high-profile black filmmakers expressed their disappointment that the film seemed to perpetuate several racist stereotypes. So taking a few quotes from what I could get here, uh, director Carl Franklin, uh, who directed uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, amongst other films, says that it unabashedly uses racist stereotypes and destructive myths to create shock, and he found it hokey and unsettling because he didn't share those fears or buy into the myths it didn't work for him reginald hudlin who directed such cinematic classics as house party described the film as worrisome although he didn't want to speak on the record about his specific issues with the film he'd gotten calls about the movie but he wanted to reserve his comment and said that some of his friends are in it who might someday want to work for tristar for Bernard Rose, those assessments may have been hard to hear, as his goal in adapting Barker's story and directing it was to upend the myths about inner cities, which I think he does really well. Um, and the biggest urban legend of all for him was the idea that there were places in cities where you just don't go to, because if you go in them, something dreadful will happen. And that's the point he was trying to say across. It, he wasn't trying to say that there isn't danger in inner city areas, but the exaggerated fear of them is the urban myth. So I can understand his misgivings, Danny, but I think this movie has actually aged a lot better now that people have had time to think about it, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's good that they took a second um, stab at it. Pardon the pun. It's, it's, it's like, yeah, um, we okay, what you said, uh, it would criticised us 30 years ago. Uh, we're going to try to redo and things like that. Yeah, and th this is one of the things where um, I I quite rightly do get brushed with the um, the old man brush because I, I do have a lot of tired ideas and there's a lot of things about kind of modern youth culture and things that just baffle me. But I think one of, one of the great things that we have in modern society is the fact that we actually take time to think about things a lot more now and things that would have been perceived as offensive 30 years ago actually get looked at in a different light today and can be discussed a lot more openly and i i think that's a great thing uh, there's there there are things about being young that i won't understand because i was young in a different time but one of the things that i love about modern culture is that people are prepared to talk about things more yeah definitely mate and one thing that we do need to talk about, and this is a fun thing this time, I swear, is the film's excellent score, which is composed by Philip Glass. Um, but again, this wasn't without its controversy, uh, because when he was signed on to compose the score, he had apparently envisioned the final film being something totally different. So going back to the Rolling Stone interview that I talked about earlier, um, what he'd presumed would be an artful version of Clive Barker's short story had ended up, in his view, a low-budget slasher, and he was reportedly quite disappointed in the film and felt that it'd been manipulated. But uh, The Haunting Music is an absolute classic score, which is something that we've been lucky to come across in all the films that we've reviewed, isn't it? It really is, mate, and it stood out when you put on the film, definitely. 
Yeah, and thankfully, uh, Glass's own view of it seems to have softened over time, although I don't think it's to do with anything artistic, because the quote I could get is, it's become a classic, so I still make money from that score. I get checks every year. So I suppose that's a reason to like something you've made, isn't it? It really is, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And talking about liking it, we, we have to talk about some of the reviews. So... On uh, our old favourite Rotten Tomatoes, Candyman holds an approval rating of 79% based on 80 reviews and an average rating of 6.7 out of 10. The site's critics' consensus reads that though it ultimately sacrifices some mystery in the name of gory thrills, Candyman is a nuanced, effectively chilling tale that benefits from an interesting premise and some fine performances. On Metacritic, the film has a weighted average score of 61 out of 100, based on 15 critics, indicating generally favourable reviews. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of C+, on an A+, to F scale. By the same token, all movie praised the film, calling it haunting, intelligent and poetic, and the finest Barker adaptation ever committed to film. But Danny, as we always get to at this point in the review... We've got to talk about Roger Ebert, don't we? Yes, sir. (laughs) Well, guess what? Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, at the time, wrote that elements of the plot may not hold up in the clear light of day, but that didn't bother me much. What I liked was a horror movie that was scaring me with ideas and gore, instead of simply with gore. So, Danny, Roger Ebert likes this movie! I'm absolutely stunned when you said that because he has trashed some of the other movies we've, we've reviewed and it's like, wow. But I have a feeling he's, he's are you going to bring me down with something else he's said? <laughs> no, I'm not bringing you down at all. Uh, so, Danny, for the first time in a long time, there is no shut up knobhead. What do you know from me? Instead, there's a thank you, Roger, and rest in peace. Yes, sir. Indeed, but yeah, uh, let's see if he makes that if he can make that happen again on the next review. <laughs> let's hope so. But going back to some more of the reviews that we've got, Janet Maslin of the New York Times compared Candyman to an elaborate campfire story with an unusually high interest in social issues. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times called the film Clive Barker's worst to date an ambitious but pretentious film that quickly becomes as repellent as it is preposterous so there's our shut up knobhead of the episode there you go mate you deserved it (laughs) (laughs) he did deserve it oh kevin um variety called it an upper register horror item that delivers the requisite shocks and gore but doesn't cheat or cop out johnny vaughan for channel four called Candyman an atmospheric and visually stimulating enough to satisfy gore hands, as well as an intelligent social commentary. And then finally, and this is the best quote of all, I, I, I love this, it, it made me shake, Slant Magazine's Eric Henderson positively reviewed both the eponymous character and the leading actor, played by Tony Todd and his velvety basso profundo voice. The Candyman is a svelte sexual monument, far removed from the silent brutality of your average serial slasher. So we know what Eric likes for his breakfast, don't we? We certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) So the reviews were a mixed bag, but 
generally the film was quite enjoyed and I don't know about you mate but um my final thoughts I I loved this movie what about you yeah absolutely I was really happy to go back and watch this one and it was just like yeah this is it's one I'll do one to add to my um, DVD collection now if I can because uh, I'm going through a thing where I'm trying to buy steel books of DVDs but Ooh. they don't really do DVD steel books anymore it's more blu-ray so if I can get this on because uh, you was talking about the special features earlier um, if I can get something like this, I'd love to have it to my collection now. Yeah, I think because the copy I've got is the Arrow video release, which is taken from a, a 4K reproduction. Now, I know mine's a Blu-ray, but if you go directly to Arrow Video's website, I do think they have a steelbook section for a lot of the films that they do. Yeah, I love Arrow Video. It's so good. They are great. And again, I think they've got into some kind of partnership with Scream Factory now because the stuff that I've bought off their website that's got the Screen Factory branding rather than the Arrow yeah. stuff. So I would say maybe try their website first if you want a good steelbook of this. Definitely, man. I'll go and write that down. Yeah, but there is definitely one out there. It's just I, I know for a fact it probably isn't on Amazon. No, there's less and less things are on there now. So, guys, uh, we always want to encourage you to watch any of the films that we review, whether we personally like them or not. But in all fairness, guys, between this month and next month, if you want to watch at least one well shot, perfectly acted, cleverly themed, well delivered, excellent toned films, I say it every time. But if you haven't seen Candyman, get it watched. 100%. So, mate, I'm about ready to get back into the car. Uh, so where are you taking us on our road trip next, my friend? So uh, since you're the driver, um, I'm just going to point in the direction. And the direction says we have got to go to a building where... There apparently is an abandoned bathroom where two uh, people are chained to the um, to the walls and they don't know how they got there. So we are going to be looking at 2004's Saw movie. Um, do you have any good memories of this or bad memories? <laughs> oh, all good, all good, all good. <laughs> We're gonna watch Saw. Yeah. I, oh, I love this film. Um, it's got. I'll explain in episode, but I've got a good story about how I saw it, how I came across it, and yeah, yeah really, really good stuff. Yeah, a good story about how you saw it. You say, ah, yeah, there's the pun. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, um, I'm gonna set Danny a little challenge, actually. Um, so one of the things that I've said in our soon to come nwo episode is that um we're going to be making a lot more effort with our social media account this year um we, we've only got the one at the moment on twitter but again I'm, I'm sure we'll have plans to branch into other things uh but danny your assignment on the disgusting awful side of things is to get people excited from a twitter point of view for watching the film and also listening to our review mate so uh the floor is yours on that one my friend i look forward to it mate thank you i'll do that now
So, listeners, I'm going to set you a little project now if you're not already taking part in this. And I don't see why you wouldn't be. But your task between now and next month is to give us a follow on our current solitary Twitter account, which is One Man's Meat Pod on Twitter. And we will get to find out for ourselves how Danny is going to whet our appetites for one of the absolute bona fide A-star classics of modern horror cinema. But, folks, it is time to get back into the Skoda Rapid and find our next stop on the tour. Another adventure awaits full of peril and intrigue. We shall see you next month. But in the meantime, and in between time, take care and don't be scared. Anything you want, you've come to the right man because I'm the candy man. Who can take a sunrise? Sprinkle it with you. With love and makes the world taste good. Makes the world taste good. Who can take a rainbow? Who can take a rainbow? Wrap it in a side. Wrap it in a side. Soak it in the sun and make a groovy lemon pie. The candy man. The candy man. The candy man can.